Welcome to season four of the Teacher Collaborative Podcast. This season, we're talking about teacher leadership. I'm Maria Fenwick, the founder and executive director of the Teacher Collaborative. Over the years, we've heard the term teacher leader get thrown around a lot. It can refer to a content specialist, a teacher who rocks at student engagement, the Massachusetts Teacher of the Year, and everyone in between. We want to explore teacher leadership because we're in a time when everyone's trying to figure out who to go to for answers, especially in education. So we're going to introduce you to teachers with all kinds of expertise. We'll ask them how they got good at something, how they share what works with their colleagues, and what's on the horizon for them as we close out the first and hopefully last full year of pandemic teaching. We'll also be rotating hosts throughout the season so you can meet teacher collaborative staff and so our guests can ask us their questions about our work. Together, we'll come away with new definitions of teaching and leading to match our new normal. I'll be hosting our first episode with the 2020 Massachusetts Teacher of the Year, Takeru Nagiyoshi. I hope you enjoy our conversation. On today's episode, I'm joined by Takeru Nagiyoshi, who also goes by TK. TK teaches English and research at New Bedford High School in New Bedford, Mass. Most recently, TK participated in a collab for leadership that focused on culturally responsive teaching, helping the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education refine their teaching video library with CRT in mind. Through that experience, TK joined a cohort of peer leaders who we all identified as having expertise in CRT. I'm so excited to have you here today, TK. It's great to be here. So to start us off, I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit about your path to teaching. So how long have you been teaching and what brought you into teaching? Yeah, so this is my seventh year. And if I'm being honest, I kind of struggle with this question a lot because becoming a teacher and choosing to stay in the classroom is not an easy decision. And for me, being a teacher is a commitment that I have to make to myself every day. And it's important to also recognize that there are a lot of influences that are keeping us in the classroom. I feel like this is an unpopular opinion, but you know how like some people are always like, well, teaching is a calling. Yeah. And I hate that because <laughs> for me, that was never the case. I really hated school growing up. In middle school, I had the lowest class rank. I went to school late every Tuesdays and Thursdays because algebra was my period two class. And I would literally stay outside of the door as my second period ended before I went into the classroom. And so the truth is, I kind of stumbled into the profession. I was recruited by TFA my senior year. Being 22 and not knowing what I wanted to do, a two-year commitment in the classroom felt like a good way to kind of buy time and figure things out. Having said that, though, I think teaching is one of the most life-affirming careers that a person can have. And there are everyday moments where I find reasons to stay in the teaching. And so going back to that question, right, like I would reframe it for myself, right, as what's keeping me on the path of teaching? And the answer is like, I love the craft. It's really fun, right? Being able to imbue your passion and intellectual curiosities into your question and create engaging content, to have a live audience that gets to respond to your creation, to have a space where your classroom work, your student relations, your community is your canvas. It's pretty awesome. And I'm also trying to convince my students to become teachers. So I tell them 
that it's like being an influencer. So and when you think about it, right, teachers it are, is. yeah, we yeah. are the OG content creators. <laughs> I love that. As you know, this season, we are focusing on the concept of expertise and specifically how we as an organization at the Teacher Collaborative, but also more broadly as just a profession, how we can encourage teachers to embrace or take ownership of their expertise. And so I'd love to start out just asking some of your thoughts on that concept generally, you know, this idea of like teachers having expertise and teachers stepping up to take ownership of it. I want to give my definition of a teacher leader here. And I know that, you know, at the Teacher Collaborative, we've been thinking about what a teacher leader is. And a lot of my non-teacher friends always make fun of me for using the term. You know, in the broadest term, a teacher leader is an in-service practitioner who leverages their classroom expertise, their experience to push forth conversations and actions on education issues. And so it's where the rubber meets the road and whatever that road is, right? Be it facilitating PD, joining your local union, joining a statewide fellowship, organizing your community or advocating for more equitable policy and curricula at your school. It's when a teacher takes an active role in pushing forth thought, making decisions both in and outside of the classroom. Does that vibe with the teacher collaborative definition? <laughs> yes. You know, it's funny. I don't know that we have a definition down on paper. And it's partly because of all the things you just named. It's kind of like once you start pulling on the thread, you can pull and pull and pull and find additional examples and like, well, what about this? And what about that? And yes, they're all teacher leadership. Do you know, like the teacher in the back during PDs who like complains about everything but does nothing? A teacher leader is the inverse of that. Mm. We believe in that we have agency, that we feel responsible and also empowered thanks to our school leaders to affect and enact change. And that's because when you think about it, we recognize that we have valid experience. We're professionals. We exist in the intersection of theory and practice. And so our lived experience in the classroom, our proximity to students and a school community, those are the things that make us the most qualified to lead on education related issues. Totally. And how do you think that relates then to this concept of expertise? The same, right? Like the work that we do every day in the classroom is essentially expertise. And I think a lot of educators think that they don't have the sort of necessary credentials or the title to be part of conversations to advocate on behalf of policy. But, you know, our expertise looks a little different from the folks whose expertise is derived through the degrees that they get or the licensure that they get, but more through the relations that we build with our students, the partnerships that we develop with our community, the mistakes that we make in the classroom through how we teach and the continual learning that we constantly do, that forms our expertise. And it's important that educators recognize that, lean in on it, and then to highlight and show the world that like we are a force to be reckoned with. I love that. I love that so much. It's so true. So I'd love to hear you kind of talk through an example of your own expertise. So something that you feel that you are particularly good at and like, how did you become good at it? And how do you know? Yeah, I'm kind of blushing for this question. I don't, I'll say this, right? I, I think of myself as a full-time teacher, a freelance educator and being teacher of the year I became an expert on talking about my profession. And so my partner jokes that I've made a career out of talking about my career. <laughs> and not that many people are put into that kind of position, this position of being able to unpack the joys and the challenges of your own profession in a way that's accessible to a broader audience and explores themes that are universal to a general public. And, and it's an incredible honor. And I think that's what 
teacher leaders do, right? We're able to help shape public perception and push forth discourse on what it means to be an educator. And that's pretty cool. I think networking is something that I've become really good at as well. And that's one of those words that I think has an icky connotation. I think of people being chummy and nepotistic. And even the idea of let's go out to network feels incredibly slimy, right? <laughs> but when we talk about networking in education spaces, we're talking about convening like-minded, passionate educators. And there's nothing more wholesome than that. I really found a love for showing up to many different places, connecting with many different people, using projects and fellowships and different working groups as a vehicle through which for me to process and reflect on my own teacher experiences. I was in a Zoom session a couple days ago and someone PM'd me and the message was literally like, you, period, are, period, everywhere. <laughs> and I was a little embarrassed, but at the same time, I was thinking of, well, I'm everywhere because I like being with people. I like being at the forefront of a lot of these conversations. I like being immersed in the magic, right, that comes through being with other amazing educators. And the truth is, a traditional framework of how teachers are grown and pushed for within a school system, there aren't that many opportunities for us to do that. And for better or for worse, I think the pandemic and how things are being virtual in this teacher world makes it that much more exciting to do this. And, and so I see and I want to reframe networking as like collaborative learning opportunities with other people. I think you're right that networking actually does take a little bit of skill because you have to know when you're going into a networking situation, what are you bringing to the table and what are you taking away? You have to be good at that. It takes some practice. And, you know, I know that you've been to some of our in-person events. So, you know, pre-COVID, we did a lot of in-person networking events for teachers. And this was a really new concept. It's something that's so common in so many other professions. And when we opened up these spaces to teachers and said, come hang out with other teachers who want to be in this space in their free time. And we throw in the open bar and here's the awesome appetizers and, you know, here's your Diet Coke or your coffee or whatever it is that makes you happy. So many teachers would walk into that setting like a deer in headlights and just be like, wait, I don't have to do anything. Like, I don't have to like jump through hoops or do all the, you know, and we would say, no, you know, you're just here as a professional to meet other teachers. And there's so much to be gained, whether you're a kindergarten teacher talking to a high school teacher across different districts or school types. I feel like there's just so much potential there for real idea exchange. That's how you really build the fabric of the profession. Yeah, I feel that. It's not like a, it's not objective driven, I don't think. And I think that's why people think networking is this weird concept that you have to get something out of it. For me, it's always the process. And the process is listening to other people, sharing ideas, learning about what different contexts are like. And that inevitably connects me to some other opportunity or learning or insight in the future. And I can always say, well, you know, when it comes to anti-racist work, these are all these educators from these different spaces that I've connected with. I'm going to hit that person up. Or if an opportunity comes my way and, you know, it doesn't really align with what I want to do in that moment, I can forward this over to another friend that I know is going to be interested in them. Yeah. Can we talk about culturally responsive teaching for a minute? Because I think that's a pretty concrete example of something we think you're good at. <laughs> and it's something that people can get better at. There's a lot of interest right now in how to get better at that. So could you give us kind of your little nutshell version of how you feel like you really identified that as a skill that was important to you? And what steps did you take 
And at what point did you feel like, okay, I do know what I'm doing here? I don't know if I can say that yet. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, part of being a culturally responsive anti-racist educator is acknowledging that there's never an end goal, right? Society constantly evolves and what we deem as culturally relevant and responsive changes from year to year, from generation to generation, geography to geography. To be a good culturally responsive educator is to lean in on that uncertainty and that continual need of growth and recognize what is it that's happening in our world right now and what is it that our students are absorbing, that our other educators are absorbing, and how can I respond to that in a way that is mindful of where they're at. And it's also recognizing that it's not just content. And there's this assumption, I think, that to be a culturally responsive educator, you just need this checklist and you talk about racism, go. You talk about identity, go. And sure, those content-related issues are important, but it's also about how we build interpersonal relations with our kids. It's about the class environment and culture and climate that we build and whether or not students feel safe to share their ideas right? It's about the process that we have as educators and whether we're creating a learning space that facilitates that kind of in-depth self-reflection that helps students internalize their identity as it relates to these broader conversations in the world. In a nutshell, I say culturally responsive teaching is just good teaching. So I'd love to go back to this moment when you were thrust into the spotlight as a teacher of the year. That's certainly a defining moment in one's career, I can imagine. Um, And I'd love to know just sort of how that felt for you. One thing we hear from teachers is that being recognized in a public role that way, or being called an expert, or being noted as having expertise is sometimes conflated with the idea of perfection. And I'd love to sort of hear your thoughts on either or both of those. Yeah, I appreciate that. I also don't like it when people are like, how does it feel like to be the best of the best, right? That's not what I think recognizing teachers is about. And when we talk about teacher of the year as a title as well, we're selecting educators who are standard bearers in terms of their practice commitment to the professional work that we do, but also those who are committed to learning and who are aware that they have a lot to learn. When I was first announced teacher of the year, I think like a lot of other toys, as we call them, teachers of the year, I felt like an imposter, right? like that there's no way that I can speak on behalf of 70 plus thousand educators in the state and be perfect, to use your words. And I think over the course of the years, it was announced in 2019, I came to understand that that's okay. Uh, part of what you're able to model to other educators in terms of what it means to be a teacher is owning those mistakes and owning the things that you don't know. But being explicit about the work that you will be doing in order to address those areas of growth that you still have. And leaning in on humility, leaning in on the fact that you have to learn is so important, is is what I've come to find true in my own teacher leadership journey. And that's part of why, and this is what I guess I should have said to the person who messaged me on Zoom, that I show up everywhere. I almost feel like there's a responsibility in me to continuously learn and to process through these external groups and through directly the mouths of other educator. And what better way to do that than through sessions and lectures and working groups and fellowships and and any other opportunity that converges educators together. Sometimes I get people ask or teachers want to know, like, how do I become a teacher leader? How do I, you know, get linked up with all of these opportunities that are happening? And 
one of my favorite pieces of advice is that opportunity begets opportunity. The more times you show up and the more things you do say yes to, and I'm not advocating for anyone running themselves ragged, but yes, the more times you say yes, the more doors and windows will open for you. And ideally over time, you know, you are making choices about the things that you do say yes to, but that is kind of how it happens. You have to show up sometimes. And you start realizing if this is worth your time in the future. Definitely. To your point, Maria, like I think of when you show up to different places, that's an opportunity for you to showcase, to enact on your values, right? To develop on and build on what it is that you stand for. And I think part of the teacher leader, and I mentioned this earlier, right, is, well, you're kind of helping a different sector of the population who might not be in education, maybe sometimes they are, understand what it is that you stand for, what kind of changes you're hoping to make in education. And what better way for you to develop on your ability to do that by being in these different spaces, showing up and figuring out what it is and how you can approach these topics. I think that's a really interesting point. And that's definitely something that made us want to do these episodes unpacking this concept of expertise is COVID presented a time when everyone was talking about school and it was just a hot topic, no matter who you talked about and whether or not people had kids, they had an opinion. And But what you didn't see in all of that was like teachers talking about the actual act of teaching and learning and how that was looking or working or not working. It just became about different things. And I felt like, you know, what was really absent was the voices of teachers who do know how to teach and are figuring out how to teach even remotely, even in these circumstances that none of us would have ever imagined. And related to that, you know, we've started in some of the surveys we've done this year to ask teachers about their own perceptions of the teaching profession, kind of like on a 10 point scale. And then also how they think others perceive the teaching profession, also on a 10-point scale. And our data set is not enormous, but there's definitely a pattern emerging where teachers think more highly of their profession themselves, and they assume that others do not think as highly of the profession. I have thoughts on that, but I'd love to know kind of like what you think, or how would we go about changing that? I read a tweet that certain professions are called heroes because It allows society to honor them without actually paying them the way that they Mm. should be or giving them the respect that they actually deserve. And I think teachers fall under this category, right? When I'm invited or, or asked to speak on behalf of educators or be in the media, I feel like oftentimes it's like within this narrow scope of like feel good ceremonial content, you know, the cutesy Mm -hmm. stuff. And they expect us to say inspirational platitudes and just smile And so when I show up in these spaces and I'm unapologetic with a clear vision of what I want to do and what changes I want to make, when I'm well prepared and I'm informed and I'm proving how educators need to be reckoned with by society, people are pleasantly surprised. But the truth to what you said, Maria, is that we shouldn't be surprised because teachers are professional and we have that expertise that make us the most credible folks to be talking about these issues. We just need to own that feeling more. You know, we're in this moment, yet another historical moment when we're about to return to quote unquote normal school, you know, whether that's happening in your district now or it's already happened or we're looking towards the fall. What's on your mind as you think about that transition? Like for the profession, this is a moment people keep saying, oh, we can't go back to the way things were. So what does that look like? What does that mean to you? Thinking about next year is really nerve wracking for me. I feel really trepidatious about it. I am excited, right? I think one of the main reasons why I'm committing to go back to the classroom next year is because I want to have a do-over. And I want to have a do-over because I feel like I've been and a lot of teachers have been robbed of what 
brings us so much joy and love as teachers to begin with, which is our classroom culture and experience relationships that we build with our students in person, right? Not through a screen. I want to go back to a school culture where nothing is virtual anymore. <laughs> I don't know if that's realistic at all. Like, that's really how I feel. I don't like the virtual stuff. I, I really don't. That being said, what needs to continue on is the flexibility, the grace that we've given each other, the conversations around how everything that we've experienced as, as challenge have been a reflection and a magnification of the inequities that existed before and a radical commitment to leaning in on addressing those inequities and supporting our students with socio-emotional means. I've learned that a school is so much more than an academic institution. When I think of when I am my best teacher self, it has very little to do with the schoolwork and content that we're doing. It's those small moments that I feel like I can push a student to help them see themselves in different ways, to build their confidence, to bring them a smile, to say that like you are okay and I value you even if you missed a deadline or if you could not commit to this work. And I think schools have an obligation to be a place where that love and that relationship and that sense of safety is what's centered and the academic stuff comes second. And unfortunately, it's not, right? And so I've been saying the mantra of person first, student second, right? Scholar second. I hope that that's what our schools become when, when we do come back in the fall. My kids um, right now are writing a research paper and it's like a 5,000 word research paper plus a 20 minute multimedia presentation and oral defense. And they're sophomores. So it's unbelievably hard, especially in this messiness that is our current reality. But if my students were to think that the purpose of the class was this product, then I think they missed the point. And I think I failed in instilling them that everything is supposed to be a journey and it is a messy journey with no linear path or no one right way. And I think of teacher leadership in a similar vein. There's no template on how to be a good teacher leader, just like how there was no template on how I was supposed to be teacher of the year during a global pandemic. In light of that uncertainty, I defer to the wisdom of my spinning instructor, <laughs> which is, there is no losing or failure. It's either you win and succeed or you grow. So now we're going to turn the tables and let our guest do some asking. So TK, I'd love to know, what would you like to know about the Teacher Collaborative? So a lot of teachers think that they can't do teacher leadership work because they're just, quote unquote, just a teacher. I wonder what advice you have for teachers who have an idea. I do have some advice because that definitely was my path. You know, I was a teacher for six years before I founded the Teacher Collaborative. And, and I do get this question from teachers. And what I always say is there isn't a moment when, you know, someone confers upon you that you now have permission or you now have all the tools or here is the pathway and let me take your hand and walk you down it. None of that ever comes. And so I would say to teachers who have an idea, don't wait for any of that. Just start taking the steps that you think are going to get you there. And so some of that, similar to everything we've talked about already tonight, is identifying like where you think you want to go what do you need to learn? What do you need to understand and get better at? You know, for example, I have to fundraise for the teacher collaborative. That is not something that I ever learned how to do. Managing a budget is another one. 
didn't ever do that. And now I do. And some of that honestly is scrappy. You're on Google, you're figuring it out. Some of it is um, you fake it till you make it. You walk into those meetings and say, yep, this is my idea. And I'm so confident in it that I'm going to convince you to be confident in it too. And I think a lot of that you have to just do at first. And then of course, over time, things get more natural. And you know, to bring it around to where we started today, you eventually realize, okay, I do know some things about this now. That really resonates with me. I've been in a lot of committees and, and, and working groups and other horizontal working spaces where because of the lack of like a traditional hierarchy, we're not really sure how to proceed, even though there's a product or an outcome that we have to work towards. And so for instance, I was on Desi's or I am on Desi's gifted and talented committee and my subcommittee, and I was asked to be the chair of it, was tasked with coming up with a definition for the state of Massachusetts on the gifted and talented population. Well, we had about 12 people in the subcommittee, many different personalities. How do you start organizing with a group of folks when you yourself aren't an expert on gifted and talented work, where you don't have any positional authority over these other professionals who are also volunteering their time to do the work? And I could have sat there and said, I don't know what to do. I don't think I should do this. But kind of like what you were mentioning, Maria, you just do it. You turn on that scrappy side of your brain. You learn what the committee protocol and procedural language is. You ask around, you observe, you show up in different places and get a sense of how to build consensus amongst very different personalities and groups. And then you learn from that experience. TK, thank you so much. This was so fun to talk to you today. I love this conversation and I'm so excited to share it with more teachers and get more teachers talking about this stuff. So thank you. Thank you. Always love being in the teacher collaborative space. Thanks for joining us for today's conversation. You can learn more about the programming we offer by visiting our website, theteachercollaborative.org, or by following us on social media at the Teacher Collab. That's collab with one L. And if you enjoy this show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Special thanks to today's guest and to all the awesome teachers out there who show up with love, creativity, compassion, and energy. Thanks, as always, to teacher Ben Truboff for our theme music, The Dusty Pencil Sharpener. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. And thanks to our amazing producer, Robert Scaramuccia, for translating our vision into a high-quality podcast even over Zoom.